They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith and life. Two bald pastors. Welcome to Two Bald Pastors, a podcast about real faith and real life. I'm Jeff Sinibaldo. And I'm Joe McGarry. We are two follically challenged pastors serving in congregations of the New England Synod in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Today we have a special guest with us, Hester Laura Everett. She is the executive director of the Massachusetts Council of Churches. Welcome, Laura. Hi. It's great to have you on the podcast today, and we want our audience to get to know you a little bit, some of the things that you do for many, many congregations in the state of Massachusetts. We also want to talk about uh, you know, a special launch that you're having in the near future. So first of all, tell us who you are and what you do and share with us some of the things that you're interested in doing, that sort of thing. Happily. It's a beautiful day here in Boston, and I rode my bicycle to work at the Massachusetts Council of Churches. So I'm the executive director here. I've been at the Council of Churches for 12 and a half years in a couple of different roles, but now I get to be in charge. And we are a network of individuals, congregations, and denominations convinced that what binds us together in Jesus Christ is stronger than anything that might divide us. So across Massachusetts, my work is to help the churches claim the unity that is already ours by virtue of our baptism. My job is to make the vibrant church visible, and that is such a delight. Uh, I think there is a narrative, especially in New England, but also mainly in the mainline, that um, of decline and despair I don't believe God has uh, abdicated uh, engagement in Massachusetts. There's plenty of good ministry happening. The spirit is still moving creatively, wildly across New England. And my job is to go around, see what's up, and tell the story of what God's up to in this place. It's great, great fun. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And diverse, lots of different kinds of communities and people doing stuff. Oh, yeah. Just this weekend, this past week, I visited a Maronite church, so Byzantine Rite Catholics Mm. uh, who come often from places like Syria and Lebanon out in Worcester. I was their speaker um, for their last night of Lenten fasting and then uh, gathered with uh, a historic black Black Baptist denomination, and then the United Baptists. And then uh, on Palm Sunday morning, I was with a Roman Catholic, an Episcopal, and a Baptist church that jointly blessed their palms in the center of town. And then I was with some Coptic Orthodox Christians uh, bringing our prayers um, and solidarity as they celebrated Palm Sunday after the bombings in Egypt. So that gives you a sense of the real range of communities that I get to be a part of. That's really neat to be able to experience all that. You know, on a smaller scale in seminary, we went, you know, for a a semester to different congregations and different denominations. But that's a lot of, first of all, that's a lot of worship in one week. (laughs) But, (laughs) you know, you don't have to worry about that. But also just intertwining, you know, the the different kind of uh, churches and religious beliefs and that sort of thing is, is truly, that's really, really neat. 
Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, we often, folks who attend local congregations often think that Christian difference or distinctiveness is something that exists outside of the local church. But every time I visit a local congregation, I ask folks to raise their hands if they've been formed or shaped by a religious tradition other than the one that we are currently sitting in. And mm. every time 60, 70, 80 people raise their hands, the Pew Forum on Religious Life found that 44% of Americans will change their religious identity at least once in their lifetime. And that number goes up as uh, the demographics go down. So the younger you are, the more likely you are to have experienced many different kinds of Christianity. And we tend to treat it like it's a Methodist church partnering with a Lutheran church um, for joint mission or a Presbyterian church sharing space with an Episcopal church. But the reality is that it's internal to our congregational life. Right. Yeah, that's really cool. I like the values you lifted up of, you know, what, what we share in common is is much more important than the things that are are different. Have you had a hard time finding those commonalities with folks, or is it really kind of self-evident right away for you? Well, I think two things. There's some real practical issues that are just the same. In my experience, and most Sundays I'm at a different church around Massachusetts, in my experience, every church basement is exactly alike. Every church has the same (laughs) wallpaper. There's always one closet that has half-burnt candles and old Sunday school curricula and a few broken chairs. Um, There are just some real practical issues that face every local congregation, regardless of denomination. Like a Methodist roof, friends, is not that different than an Episcopal one. Like, hate to break it to everybody's sense of um, preciousness, but there's (laughs) some of the bigger trends that are being felt are being felt across the church, regardless of denomination. So Mm -hmm. how Mm -hmm. people gather who wants to join things, the multiple religious belonging, the pressures on families, the mobility and instability of people's work lives, all of that is showing up in all of the churches. And and some of the struggles are showing up in all of the churches too. So uh, in my experience, uh, nobody, nobody is doing lay vocation very well. Mm -hmm. Uh, At best, we're thinking of it as like, Seminary light in six easy steps. How we as Christian community help people claim the work that they already do as part of their Christian vocation and work together to help realize what God might be calling people to, blessing that, supporting it, sustaining it, encouraging it, dreaming it. Uh, I don't see anybody doing that especially well right now. Mm. And that's a, a really needed thing. One of the things that we like to talk about, and, and maybe we could dive deeper into that a little bit too as we go along with the podcast, but we want to really help people connect their faith with their life because we do see that disconnect between right. what they do on an everyday basis and what God is is calling them to do and not really thinking of it as a calling. But it is, it, you know, God is calling us to do certain things, and and to really be able to to name that and claim that is an important part of our Christian identity. I think that's right. I think there's some basic stuff that churches could get more proficient and intentional at in just some simple changes in prayers of the people. You know, look, the ordained life is a wonderful 
sacred calling, but uh, it's not the only way to be a Christian. And how the church um, calls forth teachers and scientists and doctors, blesses, affirms, asks people to tell those stories. This is a little bit of a segue that I wasn't intending, but it's part of what's been so wonderful about the cyclists is I'm interacting with people um, who may or may not be a part of a religious community, but have something that shapes their daily life. And you're out about doing normal things with people. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we, why don't we dive a little bit more into that? Tell us you have a, a book coming out in the near future next week. And yeah. we, we want to talk a little bit about that. It's called Holy Spokes. And can you talk a little bit about the inspiration behind the book and uh, some of the things that you're excited to share about the book? My book is coming out with Erdman's Publishing. It's called Holy Spokes, The Search for Urban Spirituality on Two Wheels. And this is part of my story. I was uh, fresh out of seminary working for the Council of Churches, first job out of seminary. So like plenty of grad school debt and uh, a low paying church job and a beater of a car. Um, so I grew mm, up, yep. in, you I'll know that. Oh, you, <laughs> I know that story. Yep. Yeah. Right. So I grew up in New Jersey and it was just sort of, I think for the white, middle and working class folks in my community, like having a car was a necessity and a fact of life. And I sort of took it as normative that you had a car. So, you know, I'm just out of seminary. I'm driving down 93 South from meeting some churches up North of the city. And, uh, my car dies along the side of the road. Um, now, what is either God's uh, provision or sense of humor was that I was in a small group Bible study at the time on economic discipleship, a really, really amazing Bible study called Lazarus at the Gate. It's actually um, created by a group called the Boston Faith and Justice Network, and it's probably the bravest thing I've ever done in church, which is open up my checkbook to other Christians. Pretty intense experience. So we yeah, were. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Have you ever done that? Uh, just at home. I think half the time the church would rather talk about sex than they would talk about money. <laughs> yeah, uh, I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's it's intense though, right? So I was, I felt, this group felt like, look, Jesus says a far lot more about what to do with money than some of the things that were dividing the church culturally. And we had gathered to learn how to, spend less and give more and give generously and spend justly. So my car dies. I go to Bible study that week. Uh, and these great folks say, look, you don't have the money <laughs> to buy a new car. You cannot afford a new car and we're going to help you. It happened to be that a couple of the women in that Bible study rode their bicycles as their primary means of transit. And so I took a hundred dollars and bought a kind of crappy used frame. And one of the women in the Bible study helped fix it up to something rideable. And so I started by riding a bicycle as my primary form of transit about seven years ago. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And it changed me. Uh, It's changed me in so many ways. 
it changed my prayer life. It changed my community. It, um, it changed my legs. It changed, um, relationship to this city. It changed my visibility as a pastor. It's changed how I pray. My life has been changed by this daily practice. And so I was feeling like I didn't hear the church talking about those daily decisions that were outside of the norms of what we recognize as religious. So it's like the church knows how to celebrate, affirm, support when it's something we already know how to do, but I felt like I was missing something and wanted to explore the spiritual side effects of a daily practice. And for me, that practice is on a bicycle. So I wrote Holy Spokes. I think my hopes are threefold. One is that church folk would learn to recognize the deep religious and spiritual life of people that may not attend traditional religious services. I was hoping that the cyclists would recognize that what we choose to do daily has deep spiritual values uh, and shapes us. And then third, I am really hoping to start a more intentional conversation about urban spirituality, how cities shape us as religious and spiritual people. Say more, say more about that. What do you mean by urban spirituality as opposed to any other kind of spirituality? Yeah. Well, I think in many places, not everywhere, but in many places, uh, mainline Protestants have suburbanized. And we sort of take as normative the experience of living separate from one another. You know, part of the thing about cities is you can't hide your grief here. Uh, Mm -hmm. We live close to one another. We live tight and we're forced into relationships of living near people who are unlike us. So I think there's a cultural trend around suburbanization and Christianity that I wanted to ask more questions about. But then there's also, I think, something deeply scriptural. As Christians, um, if we believe in the narrative of scripture, our story starts in a garden, but ends in a city. Mm-hmm. The vision of heaven in Revelation is urban. Yeah, right. It's a city. I think God has a preferential option for the urban, and yet all of the religious writing, um, Christian and otherwise, that uh, is making the rounds seems to act as if you can only find God uh, out in the wilderness. Yeah, I like that. I mean, it's certainly the the God in and under kind of the everyday, even just muck of life too. Not a pristine, yeah. gar- not a pristine, you know, well manicured garden but uh, where the, the, the trash buckets are lined up on the sidewalk and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. Well, and I've heard um, a good friend of mine who pastors in one of the suburbs outside of Boston has said, um, you know, he thinks the suffering um, is kept better hidden in the suburbs. Maybe that it's, it's still I think there. That's definitely true. Yeah. Yeah. Has that been your experience? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the congregations that I've served, people live so far apart from each other, for one. Your congregational experience is something you drive to for most people, mm-hmm. uh, which includes a commute. You know, it's not like uh, a lot of, you know, a lot of suburban churches are not neighborhood churches. They're a destination. And, uh, you know, you're carving out a schedule 
among many other schedules to plan when you're going to do church versus uh, when you're part of a a neighborhood kind of more type of community. It's it's integrated a little bit easier into more of life, I think. You can easily distance yourself from that which you don't want to see or that which you don't want others to see because you can just get in your car and drive. I've heard it explained we used to be a front door society where people would sit on their front porches and, and talk to their neighbors and people walking by to moving towards a back porch the deck, society, the deck, the deck yeah. on the back, where oh. we only really invite in the people that we want to see and talk to, and we're really disconnected from our neighbors and the people on the street. I've really connected with that. Yeah, and we've had a lot of conversations about, you know, how do you reintegrate the church into the neighborhood, especially in suburban contexts, and it, it really is difficult because when you start talking about what's the context, you have a group of people that their contexts are all different. Right, right. <laughs> Because they all come from, I mean, some come from the immediate area, but a lot come from 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes away. You know, they, they live several towns away, not even um, neighborhoods mm-hmm. within one community away. And it, it makes it a, a very complicated question to ask, how do we, you know, think about being part of a community and being part of the larger community in which our congregations are set? Right. We're in an urban context. I could see that. There's still just as much people moving around, but I think there's a more of an opportunity to start to connect the dots a little easier, I would think. The challenges are, are plenty, I'm sure, but it's yeah. it, it, different, different. So what kinds of things have you discovered on your bike that you missed in your car? It's a lot easier to love your neighbor when you actually see your neighbor. Uh, yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. As, as it turns out, friends. <laughs> um, Crazy talk. Yeah. I know. Well... Right. So think about riding a bicycle as opposed to being in a car or on a train. Both of uh, our experiences where you're really encased or closed in, uh, maybe on a train, you interact with the people around you, um, but more likely you've got your earphones in and your head in a book. Um, in a car, you're protected from the environment and the people around you. By bicycle, I see people, um, you're moving at a pace that I think is pretty optimal for observing the world around you fast enough to make it efficient, but slow enough to actually see what's going on. So I can tell you when school is in session by how many people are on the bike path. I can tell you how folks are doing by, you know, actually seeing the folks in my neighborhood who are forced to live outdoors uh, who are in housing unstable situations because I see them in the same spots regularly. I know when the kids are going to school. I know when the folks who are uh, called to mandatory volunteer service are being required to pick up the garbage along the side of the path. I, I see my neighbors because I pass through those communities every day. And so it's both the lack of a shell around me and the repetition of the same route. So you really get to see the same people, get to know them, get to know their routines a little bit, and they get to know yours as well. I think that's right. I mean, that's that's one of the consequences. And I think as a pastor, it's a lot easier, maybe better as a Christian, uh, it's a lot easier to pray for my city when I actually 
see what's going on, not just because I saw it uh, in the newspaper or heard it on the radio, but because I see the building that was just demolished and the new condos going up, or I see um, the kids waiting outside for a bus, I actually see what's going on in my community because it's so present to me on my bike route each day. It's multi-sensory too, right? You're not only just seeing it, but you're feeling it, you're smelling it. You, you don't usually get that in the car. No, the city has a scent um, at different times of the year. I can tell you what's blooming in the plant life around us. You know, the thing about commuting by bicycle is also, it, it's made a really different relationship for me with the weather. Because you ride your bike all year, right? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, I ride my bike all year. I could take public transit, and I sometimes do. I ride my bike all year, but it's important to remember that there are people who don't have a choice. The U.S. Census Bureau's uh, community study came out and found out that uh, the majority of cyclists in the U.S. are poor, that people are riding their bicycles not out of choice, but out of necessity. I think we tend to sometimes treat cyclists as white dudes in spandex riding really expensive bikes on the weekends in the country. That's not the only vision. Uh, there are many people who ride because they have no other option. Cycling is cheap transit in an expensive city. Uh, and so I ride year round, part of that's a choice, but I don't know, you just, you put on more clothes, you you get uh, strategic about where you're going and when. I I have a much closer relationship with the weather because <laughs> I'm looking at it before I go out of the house. I'm not going from container to container to container. Right. Now, I think I know the answer to this, so maybe I'll kind of answer the question, but you can elaborate on what the details are. I can imagine that since you see the city much more closely as a rider versus as a driver, I, I can only imagine that the city sees you a little bit more uh, as a result as well. Is that a fair assumption, that you're a lot more visible as a, as a leader in the community or even just as a person in the community because you're on your bike? Absolutely. I mean, yeah, and, and so what kinds of things have you gained from that? I think I come from a long line of traveling preachers. Uh, Jesus rides his donkey through the city. The circuit riders um, of the American West rode their horses. I ride a bicycle. It's a it's a new way to be itinerant. And I follow the way, one of the ways I read scripture is that Jesus is not waiting for the people to come into his building, but he is meandering, walking, uh, traveling on the road and interacting with people. And so because I am in a certain way exposed to the city and exposed to people around me, I have the opportunity to chat and to bless and to interact with people who I might not meet otherwise. So uh, I did it initially as kind of a joke, but I zip tied to the back of my bicycle is a license plate that says clergy, you know, one of those like, Oh yeah. Signs. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. yeah. <laughs> right. So you're like, I've seen pictures of it. I love it. Yeah. Right. So it's like, okay, this is supposed to help me when I go to the hospital. Well, I was being kind of a punk and zip tied it to my bicycle, mostly as a joke, 
but it turns out that makes me really visible and folks have stopped me. It's always a conversation starter to ask about my ministry, why I ride. Uh, if I'm a Christian, you know, I was riding through uh, home from work the other day and a guy pulls up alongside of me and he says, Hey, I think I know you from Twitter. I recognize <laughs> the bicycle. And we had this like lovely chat. We rode together for the next three miles. Um, I got to talk about, um, I mean, this is almost too perfect. So I got to talk about, you know, where he had recently moved to and what he noticed on his bike commute and what was meaningful in his work. And if I asked gently, I was like, do you have a church community you've connected with? Um, I recommended a church, you know, come on, you can't ask for, no, that's awesome. That's great. A better opportunity um, to interact with people who will never walk in your building. And that's not right. the goal. You know, I think by being so public in the city, I have a Christian witness that I'm very mindful of. It also means I can't ride like a jerk. Right, right, right. <laughs> not that you would ever would, right? Oh, no, I would. I absolutely, like, I, friends, I believe in human depravity and sinfulness. I, look, you, you've been on Boston roads. Uh, that is a space that is ripe for human sinfulness and an opportunity to practice grace, right? So um, we have laws, but many people don't follow them. And I think the road is a meaningful metaphor, but we've turned it into competition. Yeah. Uh, and so people are angry and they're mean and competitive and I can be too. As a cyclist, I'm dependent upon other people treating me with dignity and respect. And I want to extend that grace to other people, even if it means not getting through a yellow light. Right. Hmm. Right. So I can tell you one time I was riding my bike. I live in a, a beach town. And so yeah. I, when we moved here, I got myself a beach cruiser, you know, one of those big, like, yeah, like yeah, Bu yeah. the Buick of bikes. You know, that's what I have. The thing weighs Beautiful. like I'm just happy more than it. some cars, you know, uh, <laughs> and I'm riding and uh, a car drives next to me on the road because we have a bike lane, but it's not really a bike lane. It's more like a wider shoulder. Okay. And beeps at me and is all angry at me because I was actually riding in the road, which I think you're able to do. You're a vehicle mm -hmm. on the road. Right? That's right. Got all upset at me, gave me a, a nice hand signal, uh, continued yeah. driving down the road and almost hit someone on the crosswalk. Just about the competitiveness of drivers, right? And just this whole piece of, um, you know, we're supposed to share these spaces with each other. And right. So often we don't. We we get trapped in our own little view of this is my space and that's you're in my way. I need to get there, and anything else is only a roadblock depriving me of of my destination. I can only imagine that if more people could see themselves as part of the network of the way things are connected, mm. that can only serve us to help such gaps in the way that we interact with each other. Have you ever felt, I'm sure you have, uh, ways where you were, you felt threatened or you you weren't safe or maybe you got run off the road or, or something where um took you to a dark place? It, it's a sad truth of many American roads that our roads are set up for 
conflict, not peaceful coexistence. Hmm. Hmm. So um, I'm learning more and more about this, but way, you know, the ways intersections are designed, uh, what kind of infrastructure is in place. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to press this metaphor too hard, but I think women, people of color, queer folks, folks who are religious or ethnic minority, know what it's like to be in a space that was not designed for you. Mm. Right. So our roads will accommodate our presence, but there's a sort of existential sense of not being um, prioritized and maybe not even safe. And so, yeah, I've absolutely experienced times when um, I thought, God, that that driver in front of me is drunk uh, or that pedestrian is jaywalking and comes from in between cars and causes me to swerve into the line of traffic or another cyclist. Um, I, I have a special sort of wrath for um, cyclists who I feel like are giving the rest of us a bad name, which I think is the way some Christians feel about other Christians. You know, but the ethic I try to hold myself to is to act with dignity and grace on the road. And part of that's because my bicycle is very identifiable, but I also think there's a a spiritual experience that cyclists have of recognizing that we are vulnerable to the actions of other people. That you can kind of trick yourself into ignoring when you're in a car. Right. You know, you can feel dominant and powerful and safe, but on a bicycle, you feel really exposed. And that's part of the delight um, that I feel the weather and the sun on my face. I see my neighbors. I interact with my city. But it also leaves me identifiably vulnerable. And I think that's actually a good thing. You think it's a good thing? Yeah, I mean, first off, like I, I believe, I believe in the gospel of bicycles. I believe in the good life on two wheels. I believe that my commute to work this morning was far more pleasant than anybody who had their uh, hands gripped around a steering wheel. You know, I got a half hour of cardio in and felt great and worked out some ideas by the time I got to work. And. I think recognizing our vulnerability and dependence on uh, strangers is closer to reality than an illusion that we are our own um, autonomous agents. Both Jeff and I watched your conversation with uh, Bishop Hazelwood on YouTube, which was great. When I was watching it and he did the time-lapse thing while you guys were riding through the streets of Boston. And when I ride, I, I like to go on the bike paths, you know, away from the traffic and, and kind of out in, in nature and that sort of thing. And and I, I have to be honest, when I was watching the time-lapse of going in between cars and while everything was moving, you know, I got a little anxious just watching it. I could imagine riding my bike through all that and, and feeling, you know, when, you, when I talk about vulnerability, it's like, okay, is someone going to hit me now? It's just that paranoid feeling that yeah. something's going to happen or someone's going to open their door. And that makes me a little more anxious and feeling comforted, that vulnerability in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think part of riding a bicycle as a transit option, right? We tend to I think both in infrastructure design and sort of public imagination, we tend to treat riding bicycles as a recreational activity rather right. than a transit option. Right. So right. 
Bicycles yeah. are toys that we give to kids rather than tools that adults use to get between places. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so when I think of a bicycle as a tool and part of how I get from point A to point B cheaply, efficiently, carbon neutrally, it changes how I think about how I move through the world. So, and what a learning curve is on that. Now, remember, I've been riding my bicycle for seven years and, and there are skills that you build up with that. You learn, like any spiritual discipline, you learn. Um, so I've learned how to ride intentionally in a way that makes me visible. Yep. So I, I try to ride, you know, bike lanes are great, but paint won't protect you. So how do you ride outside of the door zone um, so that if a, a person driving a car or a passenger opens a door, I'm not going to get clipped. I try to notice where people's blind spots are and not place myself within them. There's this great term among cyclists called taking the lane. So it's, it's what you were talking about earlier, where it's legal for a cyclist to move into the center of the lane in most states especially if there's not a shoulder, but you are a transit user and uh, the car behind you may not like that, but you have every uh, right to be in that space. And I think, again, some folks are used to having the lane given to them and others are learning how to take the lane, claim our dignity, take up enough space. Because if we're not seen, then um, we're also not safe. What are the topics in your book? I mean, I'm assuming a lot of these themes kind of are interwoven into it, but yeah. if, you were to, if you were to open up the book, what would you find in there? Yeah. So the idea of the book is that each one of those chapters is about a different part of the bicycle, a little bit of history, a little bit of practicality on what do gears do? Um, what, how do brakes work? And then a little bit of a spiritual reflection. So, I've identified what I think are urban spiritual disciplines that parallel some of those practices. So for example, the chapter on saddles, you know, that thing you sit on when you ride a bicycle, there are three primary points of contact, your hands, your feet, and your rear. Yep. And cyclists talk about staying in the saddle, right? So keeping your rear on the leather or the plastic and I think that corresponds pretty nicely to a spiritual practice of endurance. Mm. So, so the idea is that each part of the bicycle pairs with um, a, what I'm calling a different urban spiritual discipline. Um, how do we learn these ways that sh cities shape us spiritually? So, for example, the chapter on breaks is about limitations. So learning, I think there's a great part of spiritual wisdom of learning what is our work to do and where our limit is, uh, how to actually break. Um, I once had a therapist who told me that she thought I only had two gears, full stop and full speed. Um, <laughs> nice. Maybe other people relate to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, right. Uh, so I dedicated a chapter to learning how to pace. What is what is the steady pace that I need to keep to be a grace-filled, generous, dignified 
woman of God, um, as opposed to being a crazy person hauling through my life and my city in ways that endanger myself and others. That's, cool. That sounds great. And I like the pairing between the bicycle itself and the spiritual practices. And I think I can't, I can't wait. If someone, <laughs> if someone wanted to uh, pick up a copy, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about when it's released and you know, the release party that you're having and how people can get a, get a book? I've learned that Amazon has already started shipping uh, as has Erdman's itself. So would love for folks to um, either purchase with their favorite local independent woman and people of color owned bookstore uh, in your local community and ask them to carry this. If Amazon works for you, that's that's also good. And uh, certainly through Erdman's. The book launch party is going to be in Boston on Friday, April 21st at Dorchester Brewing Company. There will be plenty of bicycle parking, but uh, I don't believe in transit shaming people. So if you come by car, if you come by bike, if you come by train or walking or unicycle, I don't especially care how you get there. I, I just want you to join. So we'll have a party from six to nine on Friday, April 21st. And I'm building out some book talks uh, first in New England and uh, around the country. So if your church or seminary or local community would be interested in a conversation about urban spirituality or everyday spirituality or bicycles and church, um, I'd, I'd love to come visit. And you can find me on Twitter. That's a great place to find me at Rev Everett. Uh, the website is reveverett.com and uh, email is laura at reveverett.com. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. And and thank you for joining us today. And this has been a great conversation and I can't wait to hear more about it and how the book does and, and get my hands on the book and uh, dive into it. So thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Yeah, this oh, has yeah. been really fun. Thanks, guys. I'm You know, and look, I want you to read the book. I really want you to go for a ride. Nice. <laughs> but don't read the book while you're riding. That wouldn't Please be a good idea. Please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> do not do that. Stationary bicycles. Um, and uh, we'll have an audiobook coming out through Audible uh, shortly. Really excited for that. So the only place where it's acceptable to listen to the book and ride is indoors on a stationary bike. But mostly, there you go. I hope I've written a book that makes you just want to go outside with the wind. Uh, I was going to say with the wind in your hair. Oh, no, um, no, not on this podcast. (laughs) With the wind on your face, uh, love in your heart. Nice. Well, thank you again, and thank you listeners for joining us for another episode of The Two Bald Pastors, where we help you connect your faith with your life. Once again, I'm Joe McGarry. And I'm Jeff Cinebaldo. And we hope you have a blessed day. Bye now. They might not have hair, but they really do care about faith. Two bald pastors. Well, we like to lift lift up good things and good people doing good stuff. So I'm you qual- so- you hit all that criteria. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, I mean, I think I think you've seen this from some of what I'm doing. Like this is really, it's changed me because I I could live entirely with people who are already involved in church. Like that could be the entirety of my world. Yep, and the right. cyclists are. 
just a different tribe. And my God, what, what a gift to get to be in relationship with people who are really unlike me, but share a common practice. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. And, and, and having their own traditions and customs and learning those, yep. I mean, we've grown up in the church and we've kind of know what's, what to do and what not to do, but to jump into a new tribe and have, having that experience of, I'm not sure how to handle this or, you know, what am I doing here? And, and learning that yeah. culture is, is really, really kind of neat and uh, a little intimidating probably at first. 